I make hard decisions every day. Um, but I, I don't want to say I don't take it personal because I do take it personal regardless of what the decision is. But when you keep in mind, um, what is, you know, the greater good of the company? Like I always, um, you know, say to some of the people that I work with here, um, if they have a problem, okay, what is the greater good here? You know, what is it that we're trying to solve? What do we try? What do we envision here? So, um, if a, if a client has a problem, is it the client's problem? Is it the bank's problem? And how did this problem come about? And what can we do to help rectify it? You know, at the end of the day, um, it's not necessarily about the profits. It's about how we handle ourselves in order to get to the profit. You know, that's what's important. And I think that's been a great foundation for our organization. Hi, my name is Nathan Baumeister, and you're listening to Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief, a podcast where executives from the world of finance and technology share the story of how they got where they are and the decisions that made them who they are. I'm looking for hidden moments of truth and sacrifice, wisdom and folly, and what it's like to navigate treacherous waters at the helm of a growing company. I want to do all that so that together we can learn from their journey and use that insight personally and professionally. In episode three, my guest is Elizabeth McGinnis, president of Connect One Bank. Liz is a remarkable human being, and the story of how she came to lead one of the most creative and forward-thinking banks in America is inspiring. In an industry where profit margin often eclipses the importance of human connection, Liz has helped build a culture of authenticity and intense customer focus. She is the embodiment of courage and empathy in a high-pressure leadership role. Sit back and listen close. You're about to learn the connection between a New York sweater factory and higher education. Watch your step. You're in the presence of a leader who has broken more than one glass ceiling in her career. All right, so Liz, super excited to have you on Builder Banker Hacker Chief. Um, if you could, for the audience, just uh, real quick, do a, a, a introduction of the amazing bank that you're a part of. Yeah, so my name is Liz McGinnis. I'm the president of Connect One Bank. Uh, we are a community bank uh, based in uh, Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, which is in the New York City metro market. Um, we are closing in on $10 billion in assets. Uh, we have uh, 24 locations. We have offices in New York, New Jersey, and recently Florida. So we're really excited um, to have this opportunity to speak with you today. Yeah, no, it's great. And we're going to definitely get into uh, Connect One and all the things that you love about it, but also that I love about it as well, because it's such a unique bank uh, with an amazing leadership team that's just accomplished so much. But we want to dive into the stories that made you who you are to be able to accomplish those types of things that you've done at Connect One. And I've always found it helpful as we're thinking about those things that have really shaped the types of leaders that, 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 that we've become, that there's no doubt that the stuff that happens to us kind of in our formative years really does have a big impact. So I'm curious about, as you think about your development as a leader and you think about those formative years, what are some of the stories that come up in your mind that have really played an impact on who you've become? 
Well, you know, I think um, not having fear as a as a child. Uh, my dad always encouraged me that I could do almost anything, and um, you know, I was uh, a tomboy growing up, so I always hung out with the boys and you know played sports and uh, did sort of you know just about anything that I wanted to. So I think um, I grew up in a unique time and in a unique environment. Um, you know, I'm the child of immigrant parents. So they came to this country thinking that anything was possible, which was absolutely true. Um, they valued education and hard work. And so that was, I think, uh, also part of, you know, my journey uh, growing up. I, I grew up in uh, a very middle class neighborhood in Queens. My my parents were laborers and, um, you know, they always envisioned uh, a good life for their children and always encouraged us uh, to pursue anything that we really wanted to pursue here. And that, you know, with good education and the right mindset that you could accomplish almost anything. And I think that's very true. Yeah. I, I, I love this, this idea that one of the first things that you mentioned was that you aren't controlled by fear and that, you're willing to kind of take on a challenge as it goes. I know if we've talked about in the past, I think that perhaps some of that story of your parents um, as they immigrated to the United States might have exemplified that. Could you just tell just briefly kind of that 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 story and and how that probably shaped them and how they brought you up and the the rest of your kids and being willing to face fear and move forward even in that. Yeah, I mean, when I think back, um, I mean, my parents emigrated from communist Yugoslavia. Um, they went to Austria for um, two years um, and they were on their way to Australia, but they made their way to the U.S. instead. Uh, I was only two years old. I was a young child. And the fact that they came to an unknown country, not being able to even speak the language and be willing to start their life over. Um, to better the lives of their children um, was remarkable to me. You know, I, I think back now and I say, you know, what kind of courage that had to take. And I think um, I was a fearless child. Um, I have plenty of scrapes and bruises to prove it. Um, I got into some trouble, you know, growing up and always uh, raising my hands in class. I remember, you know, I was that kid that, you know, everybody thought was annoying because I always wanted to, you know, know the, you know, I wanted to know the answer or ask too many questions. Um, but I, I think that really says a lot about, um, you know, this country in general, that you can come here and pretty much start a new life. So that takes so much courage. And I think that really did shape me. Um, it showed if my parents could do it, anyone could do it. Yeah. I love that. Um, and, uh, I, I can't help but think of Hermione Granger and Harry Potter always raising her hand, trying to answer, answer the question. I was that annoying kid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. When, um, you, you've mentioned education a couple different times as kind of a key tenant that, uh, your parents instilled in you from an early age that, you know, that was going to be a great equalizer for you. I remember you shared a story about a lesson that your, uh, that your, your mother gave in regards to maybe one of your first jobs that really helped to drive that point home. Would you mind sharing that story? Oh yeah, that was a tough one. Um, yeah, so I was 15. I had just gotten my working papers uh, in New York City. My mother was um, a factory worker and one summer she, um, made me go to work with her 
for the summer. And uh, in this factory, they sewed sweaters, uh, actually some designer sweaters. And um, so I went to work with her every day at 7 a.m. And we worked an eight-hour shift. I think at that time, the minimum wage was $3.15, if I remember correctly. And, um, you know, basically what she said to me, and there was no air conditioning, so it was hot in New York City summer. And basically she said to me, you know, if you don't go to school and you don't um, pursue your dreams, this is the life that you can expect. And that was just very eye-opening. You know, the fact that I didn't understand how hard my mother worked until I actually saw it. Right. And, um, you know, that led me to I mean, I did work a lot, you know, through high school, but I worked at not necessarily the factory. I found, you know, better opportunities where, you know, I would work in a clothing store or I worked in a pharmacy and I had a lot of exposure to sole proprietors and business people. Um, So I saw that side of it too, which was, that was more interesting to me, you know, not necessarily about the work itself, but, you know, how is it that these people came into business and, um, you know, how did they get where they were? And so that was always appealing to me. You know, how do I become one of those people? Yeah, that level of curiosity is super interesting in in how it drove. And my guess is, is that the same curiosity that made you want to kind of know the answer to all the questions and, and test out things also drove that as you started working and getting jobs, asking, hey, how did this business start or how did this happen? And really helped you to kind of get a, a, a greater view of what was going on there. So as you finished off high school and uh, the education was such a big piece, I'm, I'm guessing you went to university, right? I did, but I went in a really, uh, I went in a very fandangled sort of way. So I um, graduated high school six months early and um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. My options were very limited. Uh, my parents did not believe in going away to school, which was always my dream. So um, I was actually contemplating going to Queens College for an accounting degree, but um, I wasn't really sure. And I had a friend of mine that was working for a bank in New York City. Um, she was a secretary for a company back then known as Irving Trust Company, uh, which was a very prestigious bank in New York City. And she said that she knew somebody that was looking for administrative help. And I said, OK, I'll just go interview, you know, see what it's like. And when I went to go work for this gentleman, um, my typing skills were absolutely horrible. Um, but I was that curious kid. And, um, you know, I remember going to work for this gentleman who ran a banking office. And back then, um, branches had a lot of lending authority. Uh, this particular branch was, which was located on the corner of Park in 42nd Street, right across the street from Grand Central Station. Um, you know, it was uh, very business banker oriented. So there were a lot of law firms there, real estate firms, and I was in the business banking center. So um, I was learning a lot. And interestingly enough, um, I had thought about, you know, just working there for a couple of months or a year, and then I was going to go off to college. Um, But then I had an opportunity, um, you know, my boss said to me, you know, we, we will 
pay for your schooling if you stay here. And I said, what do you mean? So they had this whole tuition reimbursement program. And then I actually got to go to St. John's University, which was really the school that I wanted to go to, which I didn't think I could afford. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going there for two years. Um, I got promoted at the bank. I was in a personal banker training program with college graduates of schools that I'd never even heard of, like, you know, Smith College and Bucknell and, you know, really bright, bright kids and, um, you know, just had such a tremendous opportunity. So I ended up staying there for a couple of years and then um, I continued on with my education. But ironically, um, I didn't graduate college uh, till much later um, after my, you know, uh, I was in my 20s. Um, But it, it was an interesting experience, but I definitely learned a lot along the way. Yeah, well, I love that path that you followed um, in in being different. You know, it's it wasn't the I'm not going to work for four years. I'm going to just do my degree and then I'm going to move forward. But it seemed like you intermingled a start of a career with education at the same time. How do you think that that helped you and gave you perhaps at least for you an edge up kind of in the banking world? I think it taught me a lot of grit, a lot of perseverance. Um, you know, it was interesting how I could transition from being a student to being a business person um, to um, being a banker, uh, really understanding every aspect of my daily life and really taking advantage of the networking opportunities that I had, the mentoring opportunities that I had, and just having a broad group of people that were able to influence me and help me along my journey as I continued to grow. Um, you know, after after Irving Trust Company was taken over by Bank of New York, and um, after working there for several years, I ended up going to a um, commercial bank in the garment district, uh, working as I was an assistant manager already of a branch, also very uh, business oriented. Um, at the age of twenty one. And, you know, I was an assistant vice president. Um, I eventually took over that branch um, at the age of 25. I was the youngest VP in that particular bank. And I learned so much from the management of that bank, of how um, client service was so important and how important it was to really understand the client and really um, dig deep as to what the client's wants and needs were and to provide a level of service that was in a very competitive market um, that could make a significant difference. This level of promotion at such a young age is no accident. It's a testament to Liz's hard work and competence. At a time when her peers were in their junior year of college, she was an assistant vice president at a bank. Let that sink in. You can't sustain that kind of success if you're fueled by fear. Her teachability allowed her to learn from a diversity of people in a demanding environment. And while some bankers focus on getting better numbers, Liz focused on better relationships with her clients. And the numbers followed. So, 
you know, I learned a lot. I was there for seven years until um, I decided to start a family and uh, moved to New Jersey. So, you know, that's sort of how I ended up in New Jersey. And um, but I learned a lot of lessons along the way. So it was a great experience for me. Yeah, the 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 breadth of mentorship that you exposed yourself to at a young age, I think is really, really cool because you had your mentors at the various banks that you worked with, but at the same time, you were also working through your educational pursuits. So you had your different professors and, and, and students. Does, does any of them uh, stand out in particular or any lesson as you think back through those times that, that kind of has stuck with you uh, since then? Um, interestingly enough, um, you know, one thing that I did learn early on was, um, not to burn any bridges. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, the world is very small and as I've gotten older, it's gotten significantly smaller. Um, people do know one another and, um, you know, ironically, you know, just a few years ago, Frank ran into someone that I worked with at this particular bank um, 20 years ago at, in the garment district. And he said, does Liz McGinnis work for you? And he said, yes. And he said, oh my goodness, please tell her I said hello. And it was just so, you know, it was just so eye-opening because what you learn along the way is that there are so many people that um, intersect and cross your, you know, cross in, in your life um, that you need to keep those conversations open. You need to be open-minded and you need to make sure that you're genuinely a good and authentic person because people can see right through that. And it's sort of how I've always lived my life. Um, You know, Frank, my boss always says, Liz, don't play poker (laughs) because you wear (laughs) your emotions on your sleeve, but I don't know how to be any other way. And, um, you know, for me, that's been really important. And I, and I, you know, I encourage even my own children to always be authentic. And if you do the right things for the right reasons, um, you know, you can't, you won't necessarily be wrong or you won't be, um, you know, in trouble for it is what I tell them. Yeah. Well, I love that. I know one of the old adages um, from many years back is, you know, hey, it's not personal, it's business. And I've always, that's never really struck me as a really good saying because I am a person, whether I'm in business or in my family life or with my friends. And so I love that you brought up this idea of being your authentic self and um, doing that all throughout. Um, no matter where you find yourself, because in the end, everybody is connected. Yeah, absolutely. And listen, you're not going to necessarily like everyone that you come in contact with, or you might not hit it off with everyone that you come in contact with. But, you know, you can still be polite and you can still be professional and you can still be nice to that person. Um, And you know, when it comes to that saying, I think that's a terrible saying. It's not personal. It's business um, because I, I'm with you on that. You know, we're we're all human beings and we're all people in the end. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I want to feel like I served, you know, my client or I served my staff and I was there to help them 
Um, I never want to go home and feel like I made a decision or I said something that would have insulted someone or upset someone that just wouldn't sit well with me. Yeah. How do you balance that against some of the hard decisions that you have to make as a business leader, though? I make hard decisions every day, um, but I I don't want to say I don't take it personal because I do take it personal regardless of what the decision is. But when you keep in mind um, what is you know the greater good of the company, like I always um, you know say to some of the people that I work with here, um, if they have a problem, okay, what is the greater good here? You know, what is it that we're trying to solve? What do we try? What do we envision here? So, um, if a, if a client has a problem, is it the client's problem? Is it the bank's problem? And how did this problem come about and what can we do to help rectify it? You know, at the end of the day, um, it's not necessarily about the profits. It's about how we handle ourselves in order to get to the profit you know, that's what's important. And I think that's been a great foundation for our organization. We put so much stress on culture, but so many people have different definitions of what culture is, or how do you maintain a certain culture, or what is the culture? Everybody has a culture, right? And then you want to make sure that you don't have subcultures. And so I think at the end of the day, if you, you know, when I think about the values of our organization, our number one core value is people first, right? So that means people everywhere. That means our clients. That means our staff. That means our shareholders. um, That means, you know, our vendors. It means the people that we deal with every day. And how is it that you are presenting yourself to the people as a representative of the institution and of our bank, of our organization. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, what you, after you leave the office, it doesn't end how you represent um, Connect One Bank, you know, because people still associate you with the bank. And so it's so important to keep that in mind um, that, you know, we're a reflection of what we do every day. Talk about integrity. Who you are is a reflection of what you do every day. That's not to say that you should never be able to disconnect from your work, but it does mean that if you're living a double life, if you treat people better at work than you do in your personal life, eventually something will break. If a leader is duplicitous, untrustworthy, or vindictive, those behaviors will manifest in the team. If a leader models transparency, empathy, and integrity, the employees will follow that example and the culture will rise. Absolutely. And vice versa too, right? Like when you leave your family every day to go to the bank, you don't stop representing who your family is as well. Exactly. Um, Which comes back to this idea that we are a person, no matter where we find ourselves and really lean into being our, our own authentic selves. As, as you shared your story of, um, you know, very quickly moving into significant leadership roles. I can't help but ask myself, what were the things that you've learned? Because there's really two big stereotypes that you broke through in the banking industry. One, your youth and moving into these significant banking roles very early on, as well as you probably, as you looked around the leadership at the various banks, you probably didn't see a lot of females there as well in those leadership roles. So 
what have you learned kind of breaking through some of these various different stereotypes throughout your life? And how is it that you take those learnings and now um, apply that to your own mentorship or own leadership styles? You know, it's interesting. I was um, I was thinking this morning about our uh, upcoming uh, conversation, and I was thinking about Irving Trust Company and specifically. And I was thinking about, um, you know, I was working in a branch network, and back then, so that's 1987. That company was actually pretty diverse. Um, I never thought of it. But this morning when I was thinking about it and we had, you know, I, I remember this one woman, Joan Kelly, um, she probably had children my age. So maybe she was in her forties. Um, she was a very well-educated, beautifully dressed, um, you know, woman. Um, she happened to be black and she was a banker. And I remember, you know, her help helping me along and mentoring me. And then I could remember, uh, some of the branch managers getting together at our office and some of them were, you know, they were probably 50, 50 women and men. And even when I think about my personal banking class, I would say it was, Okay, maybe it wasn't 50-50, but maybe it was 60-40 men to women. Um, so I think they were a little ahead of their time. And also, I think in New York City, it's a little bit easier to be diverse than maybe other parts of the country. Um, when I came into community banking here in New Jersey, that's sort of where I saw a difference. Um, you know, I, and I, and I think, you know, Irving Charles company was a big company. Bank of New York was a big company. Um, even commercial bank of New York, where I worked in the garment district, you know, there were women that were in the international banking department and there were women, um, you know, in positions of power. Um, but it, you know, it just strike, it struck me this morning when I thought about it. And um, I don't know if it's just because community banking is smaller. I don't know if it's just because when it starts, maybe, you know, more people tend to bring boards together and management together that are more like them. Um, so that was, that was striking to me as I made the move from New York City into New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and, is, and as you made that move, how did... How did you react to that? How did you deal with that? I mean, did it affect you in any way or did you just, you know, keep going as so you I, do? So I had one situation where um, I went to work at a bank um, and it was a community bank and I was the only female officer, uh, loan officer. And there were five men working in the, in the department that I was working for. And I could tell that they were not happy to have me there. And they were sort of like, well, you know, what's this woman going to do? And I was the youngest, again, the youngest a woman. Um, you know, I had computer skills. I would say that some of them did not. Um, I was quicker. I was, you know, just very anxious to get started and moving. And uh, what I did was I took on a project and I said to myself, okay, how can I get on everyone's good side? So there was this project um, that they had where they had to call all their customers um, and, you know, let them know about a promotional rate that was going on for a loan program. And I volunteered to call all of these clients um, because this was a little bit of a burden for the loan officers at the time. And 
I sort of had to suck it up and just prove that I was one of the team and that I wasn't there to steal their clients. I wasn't there because I had an agenda. I just wanted to come to work, do my job, do a great job, make everyone look good. We were a team. And so I always sort of, you know, try to get on everyone's good side by saying, hey, I'm here to add value. I'm not here to disrupt anything. You know, how can we be stronger and better together? And I think that was, it was good for me because I um, had to figure out a tough situation and it was good for them because I think that they had a, you know, a newfound appreciation. Maybe they had some preconceived notions uh, about me before, you know, I even got there. And, um, you know, I think that helped everyone in the end. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, focus on the objectives, focus on the results and focus on working together to get there. And um, if you're in a good organization with a good culture, that will be recognized and valued. I love that. Absolutely. I love that. I'm sure sometimes it happens where, you know, folks try to do that and it's not recognized and valued. Um, It doesn't sound like you've ran into that situation in your life, but do you have any advice for people that find themselves in that situation? Yeah, um, I think you have to uh, make an effort to search out uh, like-minded people. I think um, sometimes one of the challenges I think that every organization has is that you might not necessarily have the best manager. That has happened to me in the past um, where I sort of had a run-in and ironically, she was a woman. Um, And... um, You know, I tried to actually develop friendships with other people um, of her uh, peer group. So I had some allies, right? So when, you know, she tried to maybe uh, disparage me or say that I wasn't working out, I had other managers that said, well, I would, I'll take Liz. If, you know, if you guys, Hmm. if something's not working out, I'll take her. So I moved offices. So I found that to be um, very helpful because I developed a reputation outside of that particular office of always raising my hand and always volunteering. So I tried to get in front of other people in the same organization that may be in other departments, in other offices, so that, you know, just like I said, not everybody clicks. So sometimes you just have to find your person that maybe you click with in an organization. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a great transition about, you know, finding leaders that you can click with. Um, because, you know, when you first told me about your story of joining Connect One, looking at the rest of your career, it's like, that's a pretty crazy decision, <laughs> right? So would, would, would you share a little bit, you know, from a career perspective, where were you when you first met Frank? And what was it that got you to make this, but now you could say amazing decision, but I'm sure at that point it's like, this might be a little crazy. <laughs> It was actually crazy. Um, I will, I will share with you. Um, it was a very difficult time in my life. Um, I was newly divorced. I had two young girls. They were, um, six and seven. And, um, 
I was at an organization where we were doing participations with, um, at that time, it was North Jersey Community Bank. And uh, the chief lending officer and I developed a relationship, uh, you know, a friendship over these loans and stuff. And, you know, one day he said to me, he's like, you know, would you consider come working here? And I was like, you guys are a de novo. Like, you're, are you crazy? I was like, you know, everything's fine here. Everything's great. But uh, the president of the bank that had hired me um, had retired. And I said, okay, something's going on here. Let me see if that, um, you know, that job is still available at North Jersey. So I called um, the gentleman and I was talking to him and he said, okay. He said, you know, you just, you just have to meet the chairman of the board. You know, it's just a formality. I said, okay. And I came all prepared. I had all my, my write-ups. I, you know, I was ready, ready, ready for any question that he would ask me. And I had um, the pleasure of meeting Frank Sorrentino, who was the chairman of the board at the time and the founding member of Connect One Bank. Now it's Connect One Bank. And um, we were just having a conversation and he was asking me, you know, what I thought about client service. What did I think about? And it was so reminiscent of the bank that I had worked for in the garment district because he was so client focused. And I had been working at a, I've worked at larger institutions, I've worked at smaller institutions, but they were all more concerned about my book of business, or they were more concerned about, um, you know, what kind of margins we could make, or, you know, even, you know, talking about returns and all this stuff. And that Frank never spoke about that. What he talked about was his vision about the bank and what he envisioned for the future of Connect One Bank. And I was just like, oh my goodness. I was like, I love what this gentleman is saying. I was like, I think I could really make a difference here. Building a bank can be about so much more than a strong balance sheet. By setting out a compelling vision for the bank, Frank was able to attract other leaders who shared that vision. You can understand the fundamentals of building a sound bank without understanding how to attract employees and clients who want to collaborate on something bigger. Liz has been building that vision with Frank for nearly two decades, and it's working out very well. And I said, you know what? If it doesn't work out, I can always go back. I can get a job anywhere. Um, I could go back to the city if I had to. And I said, you know what? Let me just take that leap of faith. You know, at this point, I had nothing to lose. And so I took the leap of faith. I don't know. There must have been someone tapping me on the shoulder to say, just do it. Um, Again, that whole fear factor, right? Like, what's the worst that can happen? And um, I joined the company. And um, that was in 2006. And then Frank became um, the chairman and CEO in 2007. So at that point, I didn't even know Frank was going to be in charge. There was a management shift. And then at the end of 2007, he asked me if I would consider being the chief lending officer. And again, I was like, okay, um, I don't know. I've never done this before. <laughs> and he said, don't worry. He's like, I've never run a bank before. We'll figure it out together. You know, we were very tiny at that point. We were only $200 million in assets. And I said again, you know what? The heck with it. What do I have to lose? Um, you know, if I fail... I can always, you know, get a job somewhere else or, um, you know, have other options. 
But, you know, in 2007, I became the chief lending officer. I had to learn really quick. Um, you know, I was joking with Frank. I said to him, you know, more than half of his management team at that point were female, which was unusual in uh, community banking in New Jersey. But um, here we are. And then in 2020, I had the opportunity um, to take on the role of president. And uh, I can't believe it's been over two years, but... You know, I'll, I'll be with the company now uh, at the end of, uh, in September, it'll be 17 years. And it's been an amazing, it's a, been an amazing, amazing run. Yeah. There's so many amazing nuggets just in that really brief story, Liz, that I just want to, you know, peel apart a little bit. The first is, as you mentioned, kind of going back to the fear aspect, like how do you have courage when there are things that you fear? And one of the things I saw you touch on several times is you always ask yourself, well, what's the worst that could happen? I think lots of times the fear that holds people back is based off of an expectation of things are going to like the worst is actually really the worst. But if you sit back and you ask yourself, really, though, what is the worst? Like, man, I do this thing when I have to make big decisions. Um I take out a piece of paper and I draw a line down the middle of the piece of paper and I do pros and cons and I just kind of write out my thoughts. And then I kind of just look and I say, you know what? Nothing's that bad, you know, like it's worth it. So that's sort of what I did. And, um, you know, it's been amazing. And even, you know, taking on the chief lending role at that time uh, was a challenge, but again, um, what is the worst that can happen? You know, when you really think about it, it's really not that tragic. And I think as women, and this is one thing that I've told my daughters, um, we don't have to have a hundred, we don't have to have it right a hundred percent of the time. Right. I, I saw, um, I read an article where they said, if a man and a woman have an opportunity to be promoted, if the man only knows 60%, he'll raise his hand and jump in the woman feels like she needs to know 100%. Mm. And I tell people all the time, don't do that. Just go for it. You know, don't be afraid. Um, You don't have to know everything. And I think what's also really uh, a lesson that I learned early on, um, you know, this this one woman that I had worked for uh, briefly, don't be insecure. And so I've, as a woman, um, make sure that, you know, I'm confident in my ability to surround myself by people that might know more than I do. And that's perfectly fine. I'm perfectly okay with that because I can't know everything. It's just not, it's not humanly possible. (laughs) So, you know, I, surrounding myself by bright people that um, I can motivate to come together for, you know, the goal or the purpose or the vision of the company, that's really what my role is to, to help, right, to serve them and, to, and how can I help them get to where they need to be successful to make our company a success. Yeah, absolutely. The other lesson that I got from your story of your uh, decision to join Connect One and then subsequently staying there and all the promotions is Frank's ability to vision cast and provide this, this, this idea that was inspirational beyond just, Hey, we're going to be profitable and make some money. So I'm curious what, uh, what you have taken from that in how you recruit and how you grow your teams and lead your business. 
So I think what's so unique about us as an organization is that we um, genuinely care about the client and genuinely care about our reputation in the marketplace, how we conduct ourselves, the image that we portray, and what we do on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's interesting because Frank is an on, was an entrepreneur. I tell him now he's a banker, so he, I can't say that anymore. Um, but he was an entrepreneur. And I think when you have an entrepreneurial spirit, it's actually a little freeing, right? Because you can make you're making business-based decisions. And I think too many people in banking, especially when you grow up in banking, um, you're like, nope, this is the rule. These are the rules. These are the regulations. This, you know, it's in a box and you can't go outside the box, but that's not necessarily true. I just think that you have to um, think differently and think about, okay, what is it that the client you know, what is it that they need and how you deliver the message? So it's always easy to just say no. You know, I tell and I tell my bankers that all the time. What are the options, though? You know, when a client comes to you with a request or a problem, you need to offer solutions and options to those that request or those problems. Um, you know, saying just yes or no, that's easy. I mean, you can be an order taker for that. But that's not what we're providing. You know, we're providing that level of advice and trust and loyalty from our client base. We want to be more than just order takers or saying yes or no. You know, at the end of the day, I I tell new recruits, especially if you want to feel like you have a sense of accomplishment, this is a great place to work because you'll be able to raise your hand. You'll be able your ideas will be taken into consideration. Your voice matters. Um, You know, you're empowered to make decisions. You have access to senior management. Um, If you're just looking for a nine to five job, this is probably not the right place for you um, because we encourage people to, you know, to share their ideas and really be a part of the fabric here at the company. And I think that's really powerful for people um, if that's the environment that you thrive in. You know, we're, it's a fast-paced environment. You have to think on your feet. You have to make decisions. And for some people, that may be a little too stressful. Um, but I think, you know, we have um, put together a very amazing – we've put together an amazing team. I mean, we run a lean organization Um For a company our size, we still have only 500 employees, which is remarkable, which means that everyone rolls up their sleeves. Everyone keeps each other accountable. Um, As we've continued to grow and add new staff and add new recruits, you know, how do we have them become part of the Connect One team and how do we really encourage them uh, to make a difference in the organization? And, you know, for some people, that's intimidating, but for others, that's a, a thriving environment. Yeah. Well, one thing that I always talk about, and it sounds like uh, you all live this on a day-to-day basis. If you're very overt about your culture from the very first moment that you interact with the possible candidate, oftentimes they will self-select whether or not they're going to like that culture. And it's helpful for everybody, right? Because you don't want a bad fit on either side of the coin. 
And so having that clear distinction of here's how we do things and why you might love it, you might hate it, but you'll know that before you even make the decision to join us. And um, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't, it doesn't help anyone to put on pretenses or to say, you know, to tell people that we're something that we're not. I, you know, I tell people all the time, um, you know, I remember having a conversation with someone, they're like, wow, um, everything that you said uh, when we met was true. I said, what do you mean? (laughs) Well, it's a very fast paced environment and everybody's very helpful and, you know, everybody loves to collaborate. And I said, yeah, I was like, because if you don't like to do those things, you know, why would you join our company? (laughs) So, um, you know, I, again, being authentic and genuine, I think uh, serves everyone well in the end. Yeah. All right. So 2006, you joined this little de novo and obviously you can fast forward now approaching 10 billion in assets. Um, one of, from my perspective, one of the uh, most innovative banks in the country on how you do business, how you integrate technology, caring about your customer, all that, all that fun stuff. But I know that not everything's been sunshine and uh, roses kind of during that whole time. Uh, as you and I have, have talked in the past, there was one story in particular that I thought was really interesting that I think um, the bank probably learned a lot, uh, but I also think our, our listeners can learn a lot too about um, you know, some of the difficulties that you had. And the, the one I'm thinking about is the, 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 the taxi medallion side. Yeah, we hate talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so much to learn, right, from, no. from, so from these things. And, and actually, um, what's important about that is, um, you know, what's happening in today's news as well. So I think, um, you know, uh, I forget exactly what year it is, but, um, you know, we had a, a taxi medallion portfolio where we lent money to, um, you know, taxi medallion owners uh, for the purchase of taxi medallions. And uh, that market, once Uber came into the New York City market and upset that whole entire market, the value of those medallions had dropped significantly. And so, um, you know, we had some loans on our books where we had issues with those um, loans and other banks did as well. Um, What was interesting about that time was, you know, New York City only issued 13,000 medallions. And that started back in, I believe, in the 1920s or 30s because they wanted to protect the um, taxi drivers. And um, they protected, it was the TLC, um, Taxi uh, and Taxi and Limousine Commission of New York City that issued these licenses. So when we, you know, when we initially thought about going into the space of lending, I could remember auditors, regulators saying, you know, this is a great business and, you know, there is no risk here, right? Because you have a limited amount of licenses, right? So you had to buy to a medallion to get into this business. Okay, great. Everything's hunky-dory. Well, and the regulator then, said it was good. <laughs> the regulator said it was good. Auditor, everybody said it was good. Um, <laughs> except no one at that time you know, could fast forward into the future to think that an app would disrupt the whole entire industry. And all of a sudden, everything came to a screeching halt. And taxi drivers um, who sometimes would not own a medallion, but actually work for a medallion owner, started driving for Uber. 
So now all of a sudden, taxi medallion owners didn't have drivers. And so they were jumping ship because Uber promised them all this money and that they were you know, it was going to be so much better for them. They could drive their own car. They didn't need to have all the rules and they didn't have to follow all the rules and regulations of the taxi and the limousine commission. So now they're like, oh, this is great. I'm going to make more money and everything else. And um, that was sort of a dark time for us because it just goes to show that nothing is 100% guaranteed. And there are things that will happen in the future that we just can't predict. And you have to be prepared for that. And so, you know, we learned a valuable lesson. You know, there are always risks associated with any line of business that you're in. And you can't possibly predict everything that's going to happen, but you have to be somewhat prepared. Um, and, you know, we, we dealt with it. Um, you know, we had some repercussions of our actions, you know, our stock price was suffering a little bit and, you know, people were concerned, um, you know, about the bank and how we were going to, um, work out these loans. But in the end we did. And, um, you know, now it's, you know, we still have a small percentage of loans on the books, but, um, we got through it. But it just goes to show that nothing is 100% guaranteed, no yeah. matter what anyone tells you. <laughs> yeah, even your auditors and regulators, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, the case study of Uber disrupting this industry is one of the most interesting uh, disruption stories of all time. And it's interesting that you were in the center of it while it was happening from a banking perspective. But I can't help but wonder if watching what happened to the taxi industry has informed the way that you all think about technology, innovation, and disruption in different ways than other banks have. Any thoughts on that? Listen, I think um, technology is here to stay. I think there are so many bright ideas out there, and I think we could easily take advantage of technology from a banking perspective. Um, one of the things that I would always joke with Frank about is, um, you know, when you go to Amazon and you buy something and you literally just do the one swipe, you know, buy now, just do one swipe. I say to him all the time, like, we have to get to that point where want to open an account, one swipe, right? We have to make it so easy and so seamless for someone. And we haven't gotten there yet, right? I haven't, we haven't figured that out yet, but I think it's so important because as we continue to go on into the future, people, it's all about convenience. People want whatever's convenient. That instant gratification is so strong, especially as the younger generation, um, you know, gets a little bit older, um, you know, no one wants to be inconvenienced by anything, you know, that whole, oh, no, you have to wait for something. There's no waiting anymore. So I think um, it forces us to think differently because we are a lean organization and because we have a low efficiency ratio. We want to make sure that we're using technology um, to the, the best way that we can. Um, you know, 
back in the past, we've had, uh, we've tried certain systems that just didn't work and we would just scrap them and say, okay, let's, let's try something else. And you have to be willing to do that. You know, don't just stick with something because you're like, well, yeah, it's not perfect, but we'll figure it out. It, it just, it'll drain your, it'll just drain your staff. It'll, you know, people will not use it. It'll become cumbersome and it'll just get worse as time goes on. You're better off just scrapping it and just trying to find a new solution. And um, I think, you know, our chief uh, brand and innovation officer has done a great job of um, partnering up with um, different technology companies and really vetting the whole process to see how we could be more efficient, how we can do things better, faster, in a very safe and secure manner, right? Because our clients are trusting us with their money. So we have to make sure that we're very disciplined and, and prudent about those decisions. So I think, you know, those partners you know, have to work together with us to make sure that we're delivering not only a good product and something that works, but also a safe and secure product. Um, but, you know, I love it. I think um, every time, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, reading a new article, uh, doing a Google search, whatever it is, if I see some new software or an app or something, I'm so curious about what is it that they could do, right? And have we thought about this? And, you know, how does this, you know, help us in the future? And it could be something very simple. It could be, you know, something just to organize. We, we were talking about Slack the other day, um, you know, just and, you know, things that you maybe you take for granted that you see more often than I do. Um, you know, when we went on the Google platform, that was like, oh, my God, what are you thinking going on the Google platform, you know, as a bank? Um, but we just said, listen, we love the chat feature. We love the email system. We, you know, there are certain things about it that just would help us with our flexibility and our ability to adapt and, you know, be mobile. Liz is talking about a posture, not a piece of software. ConnectOne has a singular focus on serving their clients' needs. When they find technology that could help achieve that outcome, they're willing to try it. As a leader, Liz is setting the tone for her team to dive into a problem and hack their way into a solution. It isn't about writing software, it's about a culture that embraces creative problem solving. And that was always sort of Frank's vision for the company was to always use technology to help us, you know, just be ahead of the curve. And I think that it's important, especially as, you know, as the future evolves. I mean, it's just amazing what's happening out there right now. I mean, I don't even want to talk about chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I've I've recently started putting the window on my extra monitor with chat GPT, just, Hey, let me try something now and see what it can do. And it is, it is, it is quite amazing, but here's, there's two things that I took from, from what you said that really, really stood out. One, you're not allowing yourself or your bank to be comfortable in the status quo and you're pushing. And it ties back to that curiosity aspect that we talked about way back, like in the beginning, when you're talking about your formative experiences, like always be curious always looking for new things, being able to ask, well, why not instead of why? And um, it, it, it strikes me that as an industry from a banking perspective, the number one thing that you get from a reward perspective is when you're making loans, 
you don't get huge celebrations for making a decision where a loan ends up being good. But there's huge ramifications and repercussions if you say no, or sorry, if you say yes to the wrong loan. And so I think that's why there is a lot of default in the banking industry to want to say no first and then maybe crawl back to a yes. But if you have that mentality in technology and innovation, then you're going to miss out because making a decision on a technology solution isn't like making a decision on a loan. And you are always able to, as you mentioned, hey, if it didn't work, we're going to move forward afterwards and we're going to scrap it and we'll start over again. And I think making that shift is pretty hard in our industry, but even just from a human condition perspective, um, psychologists have said that uh, people look at um, a loss as two to three X bigger than any gains. So if you lose $10 versus winning $10, the losing $10 actually feels like it would have to, you'd have to be able to win like 30 or $40 for it to be equivalent. And I love how uh, through your story, you've been able to share how you're changing that dynamic within this industry, which is just amazing. So, all right, we have two questions that we always like to ask our, um, our guests. The first one is, what's your favorite non-business book that you'd recommend? And the reason we love asking this is because, look, there's plenty of people that ask how, what business books you like to learn. That's kind of boring. <laughs> That's kind of boring. So what, what, what's one of your, some of your favorite non-business books that, that um, kind of stands out to you? So there's one very simple book. It's a tiny book. And this is why I tell people that I like this book. Um, It's called Tuesdays with Maury. Um, Mitch Album actually wrote it. He was a sports writer. And it tells the story about how um, it's based on a true story, how he interviewed uh, one of his professors um, while the gentleman was dying. And um, Maury, you know, looks back on his life and wants to celebrate all the good things in life. and um, wants to be remembered in a certain way. So uh, he actually has, uh, I don't know if it's actually a funeral or it's been a while since I read the book or a party because he didn't want, he didn't want people to say all nice things about him when he couldn't hear about it. He wanted to hear what people had to say about him while he was still alive. And so it's, it always kind of stuck with me because, you know, we take, everyday life for granted. And I, and I think that it's so hard to always to maybe take a step back and say, okay, is everything okay today? What am I grateful for? You know, they always tell you to do this whole grateful exercise, but do we really do that? You know, and, you know, even driving to work in the morning, sometimes I'm just like, wow, it's sunny out today. And you know what, it's winter right now, but in a couple of weeks, you know, the trees will start blossoming And to actually be able to do that, I think, is so powerful. And we need to take that into consideration and think how fortunate we are, you know, to just wake up every day because there's so much to look forward to. Yeah, I love that. All right. Next question. At Builder Banker Hacker Chief, obviously, the big thing that we're doing are capturing stories from amazing leaders within the industry, both on the technology side as well as on the banking side. And what we're hoping is, is people can use this as a way to become better leaders, right? Learn from experiences from those of you that have accomplished so much. So is a leader born or is a leader made? Ooh, tough question. I think it's a combination of both, actually. Um, 
But I think you could definitely, even if you weren't a born natural born leader, I think you could learn how to be a leader. So, but I, I do think that um, you need to have some grit. I do think you need to have some perseverance. And I do think that fear factor, um, you know, you have to take that out of the equation. Um, I also think that you have to be humble and you have to think about how you can serve the people that you're trying to lead. Because just because you have a title doesn't mean that you're a leader. Um, you know, I have seen plenty of people with titles that can't lead a team or can't, you know, can't motivate a team to do something that they're trying to accomplish. And just because something's said on your business card card doesn't make you a leader. So I think you could learn um, the good qualities of being a leader. Um, I always say there's a very big difference between being a leader and being a manager. You know, managing is just something that you look over every day. Leading is when you're trying to go in a direction and trying to follow a vision and trying to bring people along with you, um, you know, for that journey. And I think that's so that's a, an important distinction. And um, but I, I do think it, they can be made. Excellent. Well, Liz, I can't tell you how grateful I am for you to have spent the last little bit uh, with myself in this conversation. I personally just learned so much and I'm very inspired by all your different stories. And I hope our listeners will be, too. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for having me. Whether you work in finance or technology, I hope that Liz McGinnis's story can help you find other like-minded people who are passionate about the same vision you are. I'm so inspired by her relentless curiosity and courage to take risks that could make a real difference in the lives of others. That's the kind of leadership the world, not just the banking industry, needs more of. I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation and will share it with your friends and colleagues. You'll find the book recommendation Liz made in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief, a podcast produced and distributed by Z-Suite Technologies Incorporated, all rights reserved. I'm your host, Nathan Baumeister, the CEO and co-founder of Z-Suite Tech. The show was recorded using Zencaster and was written and edited by Zach Garber. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave us a review or share this episode. It helps other people to find our show. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Mm-hmm.